Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I got to tell you, uh, at the top of the show, we are on so many platforms right now, it's hard for me to keep track of them. Um, Many of you are listening to us live, excuse me, as we do the show at 9 o'clock every morning. Some of you are listening to the show on GPB Radio at 2 in the afternoon when we repeat each day's show. But um, we're also right now... On Facebook Live, go to the GPB page at Facebook. There are many of you who, over the years before the pandemic, really enjoyed watching the show on Facebook. And we're there on Fridays, uh, so you can check us out there. And finally, perhaps it's 7 o'clock on Friday night, and you're watching us on GPB TV across the state of Georgia. However you're with us, we're very glad you are. Uh, And we're also uh, very happy to welcome our panel for today's show. They include Patricia Murphy, our Friday um, partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read Patricia's column, The Political Insider, on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And, of course, she oversees The Jolt at AJC.com, a great uh, collection of news about politics uh, that's available every day and updated throughout the day. Patricia, thank you for being here, of course. Can I start by just very quickly, I got a chance to look at your Sunday column, which is already posted online. Some people won't read it until the newspaper. Um, If you don't mind, I thought it was an intriguing idea. Just give us a little preview of what you're writing about. Well, I'm happy to. And hello, Bill. So for my <laughs> Sunday column, I took up the issue of constitutional carry, which is what Republicans are calling their proposal to eliminate the requirement to have a permit to have a concealed weapon in Georgia. Um, because voting is also a constitutional right, I suggested that uh, Georgia might want to consider having the same laws that are applying to guns, uh, which look like they're about to be loosened, and you could apply those same laws to the other constitutional right that we talk so much about, which is voting, and it would things would look a lot different. It's an intriguing premise, and people can read it at AJC.com already. Um, we can post a link to it on our uh, platforms as well. So, again, thanks for being here, uh, Patricia. We're joined also uh, by uh, Andre Gillespie, professor of political science, director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. And of course, Andre, we're always happy to see you on the show. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. Rene Alegria is with us too. He's the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Uh, Rene, I have to apologize. I usually try to check out your homepage before a show. I didn't get a chance to do it today. What's big in the Mundo Hispanico news world today? That's okay, Bill, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, well, right now, it's it's really all about the jobs report. I think we're all waiting for it, you know? I mean, the labor indications of how that's going to affect the economy um, is on everybody's uh you know, top of mind. And so we're, we're just waiting for that, that to come out. And I believe it just did. So, uh, that's what's, that's, what's on our page. Oh, good. I haven't seen the report yet. Maybe we can, uh, we'll, we'll try to check it out and, and, uh, give the numbers at some point during the show today, by the way, you can, uh, look at Mundo Hispanico. If unfortunately you're like me and don't read Spanish, what's nice about Google, of course, is it translates it for you, <laughs> which I appreciate a great deal. Um, all right, Patricia, let's get started. We, we, we have an update in the, uh, uh McMichael, Roddy Bryant, uh, murder, uh, uh, ongoing murder uh, uh, case. Um, we know, obviously, that all three of them were already uh, convicted of murder of Ahmad Arbery. But the feds last week uh, offered an opportunity for them to plead guilty to hate crimes 
in exchange for a guarantee of 30-year sentences in federal institutions rather than in the state prison where uh, they're going to be uh, going as a result of the convictions in the state case. Uh, the judge rejected it. Uh, she rejected it in response to very emotional pleas from Ahmad Arbery's mom, especially, and, and father as well, saying, no, no, we need to go forward. We need them to be uh, held accountable for the racism that led to the death of our son. Um, as a result of all that, the judge gave them an opportunity, uh, the McMichaels, who had, who had said they would go along with this plea deal, to decide whether they wanted to withdraw their guilty plea. All right. So where we stand today is that Greg McMichael has, in fact, um, said no. I now withdraw my guilty plea. I want to go forward with the murder. We don't know yet, as of this morning, what Travis McMichael might do. All of this is to say that Monday morning, we it looks as though we're going to see the start of a federal hate crimes trial for at least one of the defendants. Have I got that right? Yes, all of that is exactly what happened and the way it happened. And I think what was so important for Ahmaud Arbery's family was not just the fact that um, the two McMichaels were able to choose the nature of their incarceration, but also that there would be no public airing and no public evidence heard of um, the factors of race and racism as a part of a hate crimes trial. The state trial, which did find them guilty of murder and multiple other um, laws that they broke, really did not get into the question of racial motivation and being motivated by hate. And that was uh, deliberately done by the local prosecutors because of uh, the nature of the charges against them. But to hear that evidence in court, to understand what truly motivated the McMichaels, I think is very important to the Arbery family for the rest of the country to hear. It's such a high profile case. It's so personal and it's a really important, I think, inflection point for understanding the connection between justice and race. And I think the judge took all of that into account, but most especially the family's wishes. And uh, as a result, that trial, that public trial, the public airing will be on Monday. Um, Andra, um, the, the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors believed, if you read some of their statements about this, that they had accomplished something really meaningful that they were going to get both Greg and Travis McMichael, Roddy Bryant was separate from all this, uh, to admit in open court that their tri crime, their murder of Ahmaud Arbery, was motivated by racial hatred. And they felt that was an important breakthrough. Um, the problem is, um, especially Wanda Cooper Jones, uh, uh, his mother, uh, said, no, we can't abide uh, by this. C give us your thoughts on... on the difference between going forward with a trial where this all is going to be aired out in great detail as opposed to a guilty plea. Well, you know, I think the, the, the big issue here is what the McMichaels got in exchange for admission of their guilt. So, you know, I don't think that anybody is objecting to them admitting that they were racially motivated in targeting and then killing Ahmad Arbery. But the issue is, is that it almost seems like they would get rewarded for admitting that it was racism on the federal sentence by dictating that they get to do their first 30 years um, in federal prison, which is presumed to be nicer. And I'm not assuming here that um, we're, we were talking about them ending up in club fed um, or anything like the prison, say, that Martha Stewart or, you know, Felicity Huffman, you know, were in. They probably would have been in a, a much more, uh, you know, maximum security type of situation. But it's the idea that these guys, by admitting what is obvious to a lot of people, actually get rewarded with their perceived sort of better living conditions seems to be another exertion of white privilege that I think was offensive to, to the Arbery family. So, you know, this is not, you know, a sort of a justification for prisoners being kept in poor conditions. But if you've committed a heinous crime like that, you don't get to dictate sort of where you get to serve your sentence. And they're kind of doing that in this particular case. And I think that's what the Arbery family found to be particularly offensive. I think that's absolutely right. And Renee, in fact, that's what the uh, federal judge uh, said. She said, look, I am not going to allow you in a plea deal to tie my hands and tell me, dictate to me what my sentence of 
these two should be. I want the latitude to make my own uh, decision about that uh, uh, moving forward, Renee. Isn't it interesting, the timing? We're, we're, we're almost exactly 10 years from Trayvon Martin. And look what that did to the nation in terms of our focusing on race relations, law enforcement. Uh, going through another trial, I think, does uh, many things. It, it, it highlights just how horrific, again, this all was uh, for the Arbery family and what happened to that poor kid. And But it also is a, another gut check that this is... This is this is important for our country. We must uh, look at the details as uncomfortable and as ugly as they are. Uh, we have to go through this uh, to come out uh, a better country. So it, it'll be interesting what the, the stakes are again uh, it, on Monday. But but ultimately, uh, you know, I think so many applauded what this judge did. All right. We're going to watch it as it moves forward. Of course, once again, we're going to have a huge jury pool. Uh, in an effort to find 12 people who are able to pass uh, a sentence fairly and justly, justly uh, in this case. And we should point out that there are any number of criminal uh, defense attorneys who have said they think these are very hard charges uh, to prove that hate crimes trials often are very difficult. So we'll watch and see how it moves forward starting next week. Uh, Patricia, let's talk about the legislature. You know, with all the hot-button issues that are uh, floating around under the gold dome downtown right now. It does strike me increasingly that when we look back on the 2022 session, we are likely to say, oh, that's the session in which political efforts to uh, uh, determine the course of education in state schools uh, were the dominant factor in uh, the session. Do you think I have a point there? I think you definitely have a point there. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening in the Georgia legislature in 2022, which, of course, is an election year for the governor. It's also the year after Virginia had its own election where that new Republican governor did see education issues become a huge flashpoint in that race. They weren't really expecting it to, but just because of the way events were unfolding and schools were certainly the focus of voters, that ended up really seeming to make the difference and that race for Virginia governor. And so you are seeing this not just in Georgia, but in legislatures all across the country, efforts to replicate that victory with that set of issues. And that will go with everything from banning CRT, even though it's not technically taught in Georgia schools, uh, to changes to high school sports in terms of which genders can compete in which sports. Um, There's gonna be any number of issues. Also, Governor Kemp, has signaled that he wants to sign something called a Parents' Bill of Rights, which gives parents the right to know and ask for and request and receive within three days specifics on the type of curriculum that their kids are being taught. So it really is a huge focus on schools, on um, social issues underneath those schools. To me, it's ironic because we know that schools are struggling so very much to get kids caught up after the huge amount of learning loss during COVID, which is still going on, by the way, for a lot of schools, a lot of kids are still having to be out for a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time. It is so hard for kids to catch up. That is what I see as the real crisis in Georgia schools, in my own opinion. Um, But there is an entirely different focus down at the state capitol in terms of what uh, the leaders see as the real crisis right yeah. now. Uh, thank you. You know, Renee, we've, we've talked on this show quite a bit about the fact that there's this effort to ban so-called critical race theory. Not that it isn't taught in, in institutions of higher education. We know it's not taught in Georgia public schools. Um, and we've talked about the uh, obscene materials ban that's being uh, debated as well. These are both bills that are likely to move forward. Um, but Renee, now we have finally the formal introduction uh, yesterday of a bill that Governor Kemp uh, touted in his State of the State speech, which is a so-called Parents' Bill of Rights. Um, here's how the AJC's lead describes what that is. Parents would have the right to inspect textbooks and other instructional materials used in their children's public school classrooms under legislation backed by Governor Kemp. 
Kemp said Wednesday the new Georgia legislation is intended to increase transparency and parent involvement in schools. Um, Renee, it it feel you know one of the things I have not read the legislation, um, but the question is going to become to what extent you know parents will have a right to demand that they can see uh, the curriculum the books that their students are going to be reading and schools are going to have under the uh, um, under my understanding of the bill like three days to produce material and then parents are going to have the opportunity to go to the school board their own school boards perhaps the state school board and object um, this is opening it strikes me a, a a territory that we just have no idea what the consequences are going to be I, I agree in that it's, it's alarming. I mean, to see the weaponization of our kids' education play out right in front of us, it should send, you know, shivers down the spines of every, every parent. This parent bill of rights is it's just another smoke and mirror tactic to rile up and confuse parents from what's really important. Um, parents already have rights. They've never been cut out of the education process and have been welcome to get in, as involved as they, they want. And I, I think that this whole thing is designed to further carve out a culture war for the GOP to make political gains. They, they are playing politics with our kids' education. And I think folks should be upset about that. Kids are, are much more affected, for example, by school shootings than uh, whether they're being taught these so-called divisive subjects. I, I, uh, I saw this uh, really uh, powerful Instagram post by David Hogg, who is a former student at the Parkland shooting in Florida, where he pointed out, uh, and I'll read it to you, uh, you know how many kids and staff books killed at my high school? Zero. You know how many kids and staff a former student killed with an AR-15? 17. Um, I, I think that Gen Z is feeling so much fear and anxiety just to piggyback on what, what Patricia said uh, over COVID, climate, these school shootings. Um, why aren't parents and politicians up in arms about these issues? Uh, and if you asked kids whether, you know, they'd prefer to uh, wear masks or have their, their parents uh, chime in with the Bill of Rights with a nanny cam, which is part of what the Bill of Rights, uh, Bill of uh, Parents rights uh, included, uh, I, I, I bet they'd pick masks and whatever they wanted to read. Andra? Well, you know, I think that there are lots of, of, of different elements to the story that are, are, are really important. So first, if parents were involved in their schools, you don't need to demand school curriculum. Like you should be going through your kid's backpack every day and checking their homework, and then you will know what they're talking about in school. You need to ask your child what happened in school today. Um, and I, you know, don't have kids, but I have nieces. And usually the answer is good. And I don't remember, but it's like push them <laughs> a little bit farther and be like, OK, specifically, what did you actually do? Um, that's how you find out what happened. I don't think you need to necessarily go to this, even though I don't think that there is necessarily a problem with uh, you know, teachers posting materials. Most of the time, good teachers are regularly in communication with the families that they teach. And so, and, and by the time you get to high school, there may be syllabi for classes where you can look and see exactly what it is that they're teaching. So I think that in many cases, that this is excess. The question that I have is that if, let's just say I were the parent and I'm looking over my kid's social studies curriculum um, with my social studies PhD, which means I probably know more than the teacher. Um, and I'm like, this is wrong, right? Because like you, the history book, you refer to slaves as like, you know, like, you know, you know, involuntary or unpaid workers or something along those lines. And I'm like, I object to that particular language. Are you going to take my claim seriously and then are you going to get rid of all the books in the state that you spent millions of dollars on um i think i'm coming from a position of power and then how do you respond to the parent who basically gives the equivalent of two plus two is five and explain to them thank you for your concern but you don't know what you're talking about and so we registered the concern but we're going to continue to do what we do so i think that that's opened up a pandora's box about sort of you know sort of 
who we listen to and what type of expertise actually matters in this case, which I think speaks to something larger about how we're devaluing expertise and how and the anti sort of intellectual strains that are part of it. The final thing that I, you know, that I would talk about in terms of book banning, um, and I will disclose. I'm, I'm evangelical, was raised in an evangelical home. There was stuff I was pulled out of in school. So in particular, I got pulled out of sex ed. Um, and uh, it was always done with the give me an alternate project. So if there was something going on, I had to do something else to compensate for it. It was never, let's just burn the whole thing down and get everything banned. Um, you know, I come from the wing of American evangelicalism that's not too keen on Harry Potter because we think it's too occultish, right? <laughs> so if my, so if I had a kid in school and Harry Potter were the assignment, you just ask for another assignment that's equivalent to sort of accommodate our beliefs you don't go try to ban the book from the school. And I think the same thing applies to books um, about sexuality in particular, um, but also, uh, you know, books about race. Um, and so, like, if you really object that much, right, come up with something different for me to do, but don't deprive everybody else of the opportunity to allow their ch kids to be exposed to these things. As much as I may disagree with, you know, people being like sort of, you know, protecting their kids from some type of information just because it's uncomfortable. You know, Patricia, I think Andra makes a great point that for the most part, and you know this as a mother of two children, um, you can look at what your children are learning in school. It's relatively easy to do, as she suggests. You can ask it to show you what's in their backpacks, uh, for instance. Um, the problem with this becomes what the flashpoint that boards of education across the country have become, how highly charged politically issues have become. It, and and it, it, it strikes me, uh, PEN America, which is a free speech organization, uh, Ty Tagami, your colleague at the AJC, in his article about this, says that they have counted more than 100 bills in more than 30 states that limit what can be taught or scrutinize classrooms in ways the group say would chill free discussion. And, you know, that's the question. How much of this is going to become about the politics of what's taught in school rather than whether I don't like this new method of math you're teaching, my child isn't able to get through to it, it doesn't work for them. I think that whenever you see an issue that is happening simultaneously in 30 states, you can assume that that issue has been politicized. Um, we do have a system already in the state that has been relied upon by Governor Kemp and by really the entire leadership of the legislature, which is elected school board members. And they are really there to be um, the elected representatives for students, teachers, parents, to talk about curriculum, to talk about um, any kinds of changes in the classrooms. Um, as a parent, we have a lot of two-way communication with our teachers. There's an enormous amount of technology that allows teachers to post lesson plans, post homework, so that people parents at home um, can uh, access that very quickly and easily. If there's a problem, people typically will go to the teacher and then raise it on up. When there's a statewide solution for a problem that I don't think has been proven, I think you're getting into some really murky territory that will have a lot of unintended consequences. And this is the type of legislation that's introduced under one administration. If the politics change or the leadership changes, that legislation starts to look a lot less appealing. And so I think it's important, um, particularly where kids in schools are concerned, um, to make it localized, to really empower parents. Who has a problem with that? Um, but to look for kind of smaller scale solutions to situations like this, um, again, especially because I've seen no data and very little anecdotal evidence that this is a problem at all. Um, before we leave this subject entirely, um, Andra, um I, I, there was a chilling article in the Washington Post yesterday. Um, we're going to talk about it in more depth on Monday's show because uh, we have a lot of other topics to get to today. But it focused on Georgia. It focused on what happened when Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter uh, were f the first two African-Americans accepted at the University of Georgia. Um, and it talked about how in 1961 – Teachers at state universities were very nervous about teaching anything about civil rights, that they knew their jobs could be jeopardized. In fact, there were examples of people losing jobs for, for promoting civil rights or even talking about civil rights. 
And one professor at the university, not a professor of political science, I forget the discipline, uh, but a science discipline, asked his students to write their feelings about uh, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes being admitted. And the responses were all so highly, they were all white students. The answers were all incredibly racially charged. Um, uh, We think Negroes are of a lower moral standing than we are. Um, Our women can't be safe on campus around them. And, And the article suggests, it's an opinion piece clearly, that it's because there's no teach, there was no teaching or atmosphere that allowed for uh, an understanding of diversity and the value of it that led, that continued all the things that these students had learned in their parents' homes. Well, I mean, you know, and I think it's important to mark that this is the this year is the 50th anniversary um, of their matriculation into the University of Georgia. Um, yeah, when you have people who are taught things like this. Right. There's a lot of remediation that has to happen at the collegiate level to give people a more fulsome view of history. Um, I always because I teach classes on race, I usually always start off with and I even do this now in my quote unquote generic mainstream sort of classes on politics because of the era in which we're in now. I always want to be clear that I don't want to malign people or tell people right that you can't be conservative. But I do want to tell people that we need to operate from the same place of facts. So fact. Blacks are not biologically inferior to anybody. Um, You know, fact, racism is wrong. Um, Fact, the Civil War was about slavery. Um, You know, fact, Jim Crow was designed to help create and enforce, uh, uh, reinforce a caste system that had been eroded by getting rid of slavery. And there are all of these things that we can sit and talk about. If after you leave my class, you still want to kind of wallow in your ignorance, your grade will probably reflect that. Um, but if you still hold conservative views on these issues, it wasn't my job to indoctrinate you. And so that wasn't the goal or the aim here, right? So um, if you um, you know, are willing to do that, yeah, it makes my job harder, right? There are things that I shouldn't have to teach in my, in my sort of survey African-American politics class about slavery because they should have learned that in high school. But all that's gonna happen is is that now I'm gonna have to start introducing what I would consider to be basic content for 17 and 18 year olds at this point. But that's the mission of education. I, I th- that was, thank you for all that. I gotta get right to a break. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico Digital, Andre Gillespie of Emory University, Patricia Murphy of the AJC are joining me for our show today. Uh, Patricia, we can uh, deal with this relatively quickly. There has not been a session of the legislature that I can recall in recent years where there haven't been efforts to pass a voucher bill to expand pretty dramatically uh, uh, how public funds can be used to send students to private schools. We have a limited voucher program right now, but as long as we're talking education, let's just talk about the fact that this uh, year we've got now two bills that would offer thousands of dollars for uh, particularly lower income students, uh, families, to send their kids to private schools. And, And although these efforts usually don't go anywhere, I wonder if under the political climate we're dealing with today, there's more chance they will. You know, I think it also is not just the political climate. I think it has uh, to do with parents' own experience in the last two years. Mm. Um, There was just a really patchy um, reaction to COVID in a lot of different schools. Some schools uh, stayed open um, and were able to be open or chose to be open much longer. Other schools were closed for more than a year in a row. Um, Parents really didn't have any ability to get themselves out of that situation if they didn't feel like they had a way to. Private schools largely were in session throughout the last year. And so I think that is the one difference in this conversation. There was just a situation that nobody anticipated, and a lot of parents felt like they did not have the tools to change their children's circumstances if they want to. Um, I don't know what this, what's going to happen with these two bills, but I do think that's certainly going to be and has been a 
part of the conversation already. Um, the same political dynamics will be at play and uh, the same arguments also that when you take uh, public money out of public education, it makes public education worse for all of the students involved in it. Um, but I do think there is a slightly different dynamic here and that's informed by parents' own experience across the state. And so I know that lawmakers are getting more input on this and uh, with different arguments than they've heard before. And that could um, certainly change the dynamic. And uh, the uh, because the environment, as you said, is really charged when it comes to education issues, I think this is going to be something that we are certainly watching carefully. Yeah, Renee, um, the argument against this, of course, is that, and Patricia referred to it, is that um, you're, what, you're, what you're essentially doing here is the, the state, of course, has a per-pupil funding ratio, a certain amount of money for each student going to schools. Uh, uh, under legislation being proposed now and other bills before it, um, you take that, that money, which is, I think, 60-some hundred dollars right now, and the, it transfers with the student to the private institution the student wants to go to. So, you know, and as Patricia points out, that takes more money out of the public school system. Uh, but there's another interesting aspect to this, uh, Renee, and that is you've got these bills that are about banning books, about not teaching critical race theory, where the teachers may already feel parental bill of rights, that they're under a certain assault. Um, and now on something like this, teachers groups have always opposed vouchers. And I find it fascinating that as, as Brian Kemp looks to win teacher support for his bid for re-election, uh, these are the kinds of issues that could work against him. So the politics of it, but also the reality of the funding and what happens to public schools when you have vouchers. Yeah, I, um, you know, just from the, the last segment and, and the discussion over, over teaching teachers, I mean, you, you, you have to feel really bad for teachers right now in that they're really in a tough tough spot i i have friends who are who are high school teachers and they're burnt they're burnt out they they can't you know they they don't win with the parents they can't effectively teach what is the honor in the profession that they signed up for and that's unfortunate you know in particular with 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 this voucher uh bill you know the parents are 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 already saying that the the six thousand dollars in the bill isn't enough to pay for a private tuition in most uh, most private schools in Georgia. Meaning it would basically act as a subsidy for more affluent parents already making that choice while still locking out poor parents. Um, the the Southern Education Foundation and nine other organizations sent a letter in opposition to the voucher bill saying it diverts resources away from public school systems in need, uh, leaving many of Georgia's most vulnerable student populations with diminished education opportunities. I, and, you know, no one wants that. Uh, Georgians don't want that. I I think it's, a, it's pretty safe to say that a better Georgia is a better educated one across the board, uh, getting there through the political landmines of this this legislature is is going to be difficult. Um, all right, it, we seem to have a theme going here about education, so let's continue it for a couple more minutes. Um, let's talk about uh, Sonny Purdue uh, for a few minutes, Patricia. Uh, we are learning. You know, we it it seems like it's been six months or more since we were really covering with some uh, uh, intensity the possibility that Sonny Perdue is going to become the next chancellor of the University System of Georgia. There was a lot of objection to that. Students, pro Some students were protesting that. At least um, one accreditation organization said that if a politician gets that job, the University System of Georgia could lose its accreditation. Um, and then that all seemed to <clears throat> quiet down for quite a while, and, and we didn't see much news about it. Well, it's back again, Patricia, because Governor Kemp is now uh, altered the, the shape of the uh, a Board of Regents. He's put people on it who are supporters of his. And even though Sonny Perdue's cousin is running against him for governor, we're hearing that Sonny Perdue is now again a prime candidate for this job. Yeah, there is just a wild political story that is going to be a part of this, um, no matter what happens. And of course, um, because David Perdue has now challenged Brian Kemp, 
and the GOP primary for governor, just such an unexpected out of the world, off the wall decision that he made. The wide assumption was that, okay, all Purdue's are off the table. Uh, they're all non grata. Um, but uh, that has not been the case for Sonny Purdue. And Sonny Purdue has long had a relationship with Brian Kemp that had nothing to do with David Purdue. He may have even seen a lot more of Brian Kemp in his adult life than he did of David Purdue, to be honest with you. Um, and Sonny Purdue appointed Brian Kemp to be Secretary of State, his first statewide um, role before he ran for re-election. And so um, Purdue was a huge booster for Kemp when very few people were. And so uh, Brian Kemp uh, and the two of them also get along extremely well. I think Kemp uh, trusts Purdue, likes Purdue, thinks Purdue would do a good job. Um, and so uh, this weird political dynamic in the background um, has also made it impossible not to notice that Sonny Purdue has not really said a word about this governor's race and about his own cousin challenging um, challenging Brian Kemp in the primary. And uh, so it's uh, created the situation where um, the fact that he's not off the table means that he's on the table. He's also uh, likely to be doing a formal interview with the Board of Regents coming up here. So it's very much alive. Um, it is not Brian Kemp's decision to make. That's really important to note. But it is the decision of a number of people who he has appointed to the board. Um, and once a governor has appointed you to the board, we can assume you're aligned with that governor on a lot of issues, most especially the issue of le the leadership of the university system. Yeah. So it's a, there is a ton behind the scenes. Andra, um, and of course, the, the, the students who protested and, and others, of course, were concerned that Sonny Purdue is so uh, uh, significantly aligned to Republican conservative values and, in fact, has said uh, at least on one occasion, that he was concerned about the politics in the university, the more liberal trends of teaching. And, you know, here you are uh, protected in a lovely private educational institution, one of the finest in the country. Uh, you don't have to deal with the a board of regents or the chancellor, but certainly you must be thinking about what it means to your colleagues who are in the university system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the objection to Purdue is is not that he's a Republican. The objection is that he doesn't know anything about higher education. And so this is my general sort of, you know, complaint about the Board of Regents um, and, you know, sort of about some of these chancellorships. Um, you need somebody in the room who has had experience with higher education on the opposite side of earning one's degree. So you need to have been more than a student so that you really know how the back office works in order to, to be, um, I think, effective in leadership. And so I don't think that, you know, I don't I would object to just about any politician who didn't come from a background in education having a chancellor's position. And we've seen places where politicians have been tapped to be university presidents and it's been disastrous and it's not just Republicans. Um, so, you know, we see the tensions that Sam Olin's had when he was president of Kennesaw State, right? I think for the exact same reasons here, we could look at Bob Carey, Democratic senator, a former senator from Nebraska, who was president of the New School. That didn't work out either, <laughs> right? Like this isn't a partisan thing. This is a you know, yeah, they, they hire these folks thinking that they're rainmakers because they're used to fundraising, right? But you have to do more. While fundraising is a big part of the job, there's a lot more that goes on there in terms of leadership. And you need to have the support of those faculty who really do run the place um, and understand what their experience is, I think, in order to be effective in these positions. Renee, weigh in on this. Well, it, it's a bit Shakespearean, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> one Purdue is Kemp's mortal enemy. Another Purdue is Kemp's selected political tool to make the other Purdue's life hell. Um, and, and in the process, all of Georgia's educational system may suffer. I, I, I think it's universal, just to you know, echo what Andre said, that Purdue is not qualified to be chancellor of the education system. Uh, you know, Staff, students are opposed to Purdue. When, when he first showed interest last spring, the Southern Association of Colleges um, sent a letter warning the system could be found out of compliance and in the process of picking the next leader politicized, which it clearly is. So it's, well, surprise, surprise, politics at its finest or worse, depending on who you ask. 
Okay. Uh, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. Since we've talked now about David Perdue and Brian Kemp, let's dig, dig a little deeper into some new developments in the campaign between the two of them. Uh, we'll do that and uh, talk about a few other measures that are uh, uh, underway down at the Capitol that I think are worth uh, getting into the show today as well. You're uh, listening to Watching Political Rewind. We're we're back with Political Rewind. Um, Patricia, let me turn to the gubernatorial race for just a couple minutes here. Um, we, We know that the other day, David Perdue released his first TV commercial, notable because he barely was in it at all. There was a photograph of him with Donald Trump. It was an into-the-camera endorsement uh, of David Perdue by Donald Trump. Very forceful endorsement, condemnation of Brian Kemp. Uh, So I said on that show that we very rarely like to play commercials on our show unless there's something exceptional about them. And that was an example of that. We thought, yeah, we should, we should see what they're, how they're leading with Donald Trump. And so I want to do the same thing this morning today with the Brian Kemp commercial, which just came out, Patricia, um, which counters the, uh, the uh, Purdue uh, ad uh, and the Trump endorsement by invoking Donald Trump in a rather positive way and then attacking David Purdue on the basis of what Trump says. Let's uh, see that or listen to that commercial right now. President Trump worked hard putting America first. I'm going to bring jobs back from China. But David Perdue sent American jobs to China. Over and over again. By the thousands. And made millions. When asked to defend it, Perdue said. Defend it, I'm proud of it. That's David Perdue putting himself first and America last. So Patricia, so Patricia, that talk about the high wire act there. You invoke uh, Donald Trump, who is your sworn enemy, uh, to attack David Perdue, his candidate for governor. Yes. Well, so it's a perfect illustration of this really unique spot that Brian Kemp is in. And we're going to have to see if he's able to finesse it. But then an ad like this is exactly what he needs to be doing. And he even though Donald Trump has declared him a sworn enemy, Brian Kemp has not declared Donald Trump a sworn enemy. And that's a really important thing for people to be aware of, because even though uh, Donald Trump just hammers Brian Kemp day in and day out, that is not a two-way street. And that is because Brian Kemp, first of all, is quite conservative. Um, there may not have been that many policy issues that he really differed with um, with uh, President Trump. But then it is also super important to understand and realize Brian Kemp can't afford to lose really a single Donald Trump voter. This is a 50-50 state and a huge portion of the Republican electorate are Donald Trump supporters. So he needs to make it okay for those Trump supporters to support him, even though we know, all know why uh, President Trump is not supporting uh, Brian Kemp. He needs to give those Republican voters permission to still be loyal to Trump, but find a way to support him as well. And that is by him praising Donald Trump in the process. Yeah. I, Renee and Andra, Renee, why don't you go ahead on this first and then Andra. I, it's a tough, tough act to pull off, it seems to me. Um, I, I, it, we've already learned that uh, it, it's hard to crack people who love Donald Trump and Trump voters. We're, we're going to have to watch and see how that unfolds, Renee. Yeah, when when you uh, when when you're dealing with Donald Trump, I think it's safe to say that anybody who has is has been burned. You're playing with fire. Look at look at what just happened with Lindsey Graham and uh, and Trump attacking Lindsey Graham after Lindsey Graham has backed Trump up for uh, the last couple of years, uh, alienating so many of of his of his voters in his home state. I, I, I it makes you think of that that fable of the frog swimming across the river where a scorpion, you know, asks the frog for a ride and the frog agrees and uh, to his better judgment, uh, you know, and then the scorpion ends up stinging the frog and and they both 
they both die and the frog, you know, asks, why'd you do that? And the scorpion says, it's in, it's in my nature. You can kind of see that uh, it's going to happen here as well. Andre, it, it, go, you want to weigh in, Andre? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm happy to hear your question. Um, you know, I think that there are a couple of things that are at play. So one, there is Donald Trump and there is Trumpism. Um, and the Republican Party, one, doesn't look like it's 100% moved away from Donald Trump entirely. But this suggests that once they do, Trumpism is still a force to be reckoned with within the party. And what Brian Kemp is doing, not only in this, but also in what we were talking about in the last segment uh, with uh, the Board of Regents, is he's actually being somewhat deft. Uh, he's got a primary strategy and he's got a general election strategy to think about if he intends to be successful here. So as far as the primary strategy is concerned, he does have to appeal to at least some Trump voters in order to have a viable candidacy. So he does want to embrace Trumpism, um, even if Donald Trump is personally rejecting him. And he wants to leverage his deep connections and networks in the state, which are longer, um, longer, uh, you know, lasting and are deeper than David Perdue, who's still a relatively new politician within the state. And I think he's showing that very deftly in terms of who his regent appointments have been and whether or not they would actually even be willing to consider Sonny Perdue as well. But also, assuming that he makes it out of the primary, um, he is going to need all of those Republican voters to come back and vote for him. And he doesn't want to alienate them. And so if he went scorched earth on Donald Trump in the primary, right, as though a never Trump strategy would win in the Republican Party right now, it wouldn't help in the general yeah. election where you know that Donald Trump actually still holds a lot of allegiance. Um, OK, Patricia, a lot of political coverage that we do here on Political Rewind that you do in the AJC um, is focused on on Republicans right now because their primary contests are hot. Uh, uh, Purdue Kemp being the primary example of that, the Senate race being another. But so let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about Stacey Abrams for a couple of minutes. Um, she announced that her campaign announced they'd raised $9.2 million in just two months. Her, she is one of the powerhouse fundraisers of any that you've ever heard about, isn't she? Oh, absolutely. And let's rewind to the time when she wasn't even a candidate after she lost her race for governor in Georgia. She went on to raise $100 million with Fair Fight, um, not being on any ballot at all. And that is just remarkable. And it really shows she is a new kind of fundraiser with a wild amount of appeal nationwide um, and also very close relationships with some mega donors. I mean, a lot of that money from um, Fair Fight was cut in one million dollar increments. And so it is uh, both a grassroots organization with a lot of grassroots support, but also um, some serious high level donors. And um, when Stacey Abrams runs for governor, she's going to get a lot of that same kind of support and possibly even an identical amount of support. I don't know anybody who wrote a check to Fair Fight who wouldn't also want to write a check to Stacey Abrams. So she's in just a totally different stratosphere of fundraising. Um, one reason that's especially important for Democrats in Georgia is the way she spends her money. It has never been a Stacey Abrams television bonanza when she runs. She has really seeded the ground here in Georgia with a ground game with voter education, voter registration, voter turnout. And that's the kind of investment. And that's one of the reasons we see so many statewide Democrats running right now. Every Democrat running right now knows that they will be a beneficiary of that Stacey Abrams turnout machine and to raise $9 million in two months when the governor, the sitting governor, raised about $7.5 million in six months. That shows you the kind of disparity that Republicans may be dealing with. Yeah, and it's, it, it goes to what uh, Andre just said a minute ago. Uh, you emerged from the Republican primary and you were going to face a, a just an extraordinary amount of money coming from the Democratic uh, uh, side of the aisle. Um, hey, Patricia, while we're talking about Stacey Abrams, just a quick note. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. When, when, the, when the Supreme Court uh, vacancy occurred recently and when President Biden uh, vowed that he would, in fact, uh, uh, nominate an African-American woman, uh, there was a lot of talk about several uh, candidates, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, of course, Michelle Childs, uh, in, uh, were both very, very prominently named. But more and more, although we didn't think for a while that there was reason to talk about this, 
AP the other day said Leslie Abrams Gardner, a U.S. District Court judge in the Middle District of Georgia, is also really in consideration, uh, Patricia. And, of course, she happens to be Stacey Abrams' sister. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I don't actually know if Stacey Abrams' association, if Stacey Abrams being um, her sister, is going to help or hurt her nomination, to be honest with you, um, because Democrats are going to need um, every vote they can get uh, for a nomination from President Biden. Um, and right now there is a sitting U.S. senator, a Democrat, who is off, um, sort of out of situation right now because he had a stroke, um, yeah. Ben Ray Lujan. And so they're down to 49 votes. Um, there is a situation where the, the White House does not want this to look like a heavily political decision. Um, it's obviously a statewide, I mean, excuse me, a lifetime appointment um, to it to be perceived as blatantly political, as supporting the sister of Stacey Abrams, um, I think could actually hurt her chances. There's also a South Carolina judge um, who is uh, seems to be a, a favorite of some important South Carolinians um, who yeah, are very Michelle influential yeah. with President Biden. Um, so I don't I don't know if it helps or hurts her, to be honest with you. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Andre, I, that's a great question. I, I, I think we're all wondering the same thing. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to be associated with your sister Stacey Abrams right now? Um, you know, honestly, in, in in this case, I'm not sure that it it matters a whole lot. I mean, I think that there is the issue of whether or not Gardner has recused herself in cases where fair fright might have been indirectly implicated that she would have to answer to. I think the reality of it is, is that as impressive as Judge Gardner is, there are other judges who have risen kind of ahead of her, in part because they've been on or have been appointed to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, and, you know, they've had appellate uh, judgeships and other types of things that I think are probably going to make them stand out a little bit more. So that doesn't mean that Abram Gardner can't be considered in the future, but I wouldn't necessarily think that she's in the top three right now, even with the uh, a lot of the coverage around her. Yeah. And Renee, before we do run out of time, uh, as Patricia pointed out, uh, uh, Representative Clyburn in South Carolina has put a hard press on uh, President Biden to name Michelle Childs. And of course, one of the reasons he thinks he's got some coinage there is he gave his endorsement, which turned around the Biden campaign in South Carolina on the basis that Biden would come out and publicly support an African-American for the Supreme Court. Yeah, without Clyburn's uh, endorsement in South Carolina, we would not have a President Biden right now. That's how much he owes Clyburn and his backing. You know, we're out of time, but here we go. Another example of just how important Georgia has suddenly become in uh, national politics today. Um, Renee Alegria, uh, I'm so glad that you could be with us. Andrew Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, thank you for another terrific edition of Political Rewind. We're out of time for today. Um, we'll be back again with a new show on Monday. My thanks to Jesse Neiswanger, to Sam Burmistaws, and Natalie Mendenhall for their work on this show. Um, I'll see you on Monday. And in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, please wear a mask, and get a booster shot. Bye-bye.